Hello and welcome into the Floor Slap Podcast, everyone. Uh, as always, I'm your host, Sean, and it's absolutely bonkers to me that we're already getting into week seven of the college football season. Seems like just last week we had that ugly, ugly opener between Nebraska and Minnesota, uh, but the season continues to chug along, so we really got to make sure to savor every weekend we have with college football. Um, so we got another packed episode ahead of ourselves. As always, I'm going to recap week, week six's action um, and give out some superlatives from the weekend, uh, and then I'm going to get into the college football playoff a little bit. We haven't talked too much about that on this show um but finally going to get into some scenarios you know uh comparing resumes and trying to predict who will be there in that 14 playoff at the end of the season as well as um trying to figure out any ways that the big 10 could get two teams into the playoff for the second straight year um and then as always we'll recap by looking forward to week seven's slate of action got some good games ahead of ourselves this weekend so won't waste any more time and let's jump right into it this is the Floor Slap Podcast. Man, you know, I really hope to uh, one day invest in a, a better intro for you guys. Kind of getting sick of the, the royalty-free intro I had to put together, but... Um, anyway, going to dive right into what we saw out of Week 6 in the Big Ten. Um, I'm going to start off with the game we saw Friday night, Nebraska traveling to Illinois. Uh, Matt Rule got what I guess you could call was his first signature win as Nebraska's head coach, and they're now sitting at 3-3. Three and three. Um, The Huskers secured a 10-0 lead about halfway through the second quarter in that game, um, and then they had a kick that was... I couldn't really tell either the most perfectly executed pooch kick ever or it was just a kick that kind of got caught up in the wind a little bit and surprised the Illinois return man by how short it was. Um, but it bounced around the 20 yard line and, um, Nebraska recovered it, got the ball right back at the Illinois 25, scored on the very next play. Um, and once they, you know, hit that 17 nothing mark, uh, the way their defense was playing, um, really kind of no hope for Illinois. Um, but you know, Nebraska did have two fumbles in the red zone and a missed field goal attempt that did keep Illinois in it until Till the very end. I mean, they got the ball back a few times in that fourth quarter, down only 20 to 7, um, where, you know, a touchdown could have really changed the whole dynamic of the game. But um, that black shirt defense by Nebraska was absolutely smothering, stifled any chance of a comeback. Um, and Nebraska got that road win in Champaign 20 to 7. Um, so I'll talk about Nebraska first, because um, if you're a Huskers fan, I think you just have to be happy that you got the win. No matter how ugly it was, you were now 3-3 three and three and well on your way uh, to being a bowl team and reaching your preseason goal of getting you know, getting six wins and getting to that bowl game with an opportunity to have your first winning season um, in almost a decade, which is crazy to think about. Um, and honestly, the reality for Nebraska right now is they would be at least 4-2 and two had Heinrich Hartberg started week one. There's not a doubt in my mind they would have been able to knock off that Minnesota team. And honestly, they really could have beaten Colorado too had they started Harburg. The way their defense played in that first half, um, I think Nebraska really could have just gashed that Colorado defense and held onto the ball and made it a very different game. But, you know, regardless... They're sitting at three and three, which is still a win. And, you know, Heinrich Harburg is the best dual threat quarterback in the conference by far at this point. Um, but I think his health moving forward really is paramount for their chances of getting to a bowl game because the injuries are starting to pile up on both sides of the ball, um, but mainly on offense. You know, obviously they lost their two, their top two running backs for the season a few weeks ago. Um, Anthony Grant has kind of stepped into that role and, you know, he's been effective, but, you know, definitely not overwhelmingly um, productive. 
Um, but then news came out um, earlier this week that Marcus Washington, you know, one of their leaders at the receiver, he's out for the year now with a torn ACL. So, I mean, it's already been the case that Hardberg's legs have been the engine to this offense. But if something happens to him where he's not 100% or he goes down and Jeff Sims has to come back in, um, I feel like that would really just axe any any chances Nebraska has um, Nebraska has of getting to a bowl game. Um, because it was only confirmed against Illinois that Heinrich Harburg, as athletic as he is, as good of a leader as he is, and um, as well as he is running this offense, um, it was confirmed against Illinois that he's just not going to take that next step to be a real threat throwing the ball downfield this season. Um, and it was also a shame to see all the mistakes um, start to litter this offense again and kind of figure once they bench Jeff Sims. Hopefully that would have been behind them, but they made a lot of mistakes, as I said before, two fumbles inside the red zone. Um, and the way they operate on offense, just kind of gashing teams and, you know, running the ball until, um, you know, it, it gets almost ugly to a certain point. Um, but the way they operate on offense, I think their MO really needs to be ball security. Um, and obviously that wasn't the case with Illinois. Luckily, they played Illinois of all teams in the Big Ten. They were able to get that win. Um, but this was an ugly game by both offenses. Um but it did feel like a game that Nebraska would have found a way to lose in the past five to ten seasons, you know, especially under Scott Frost. And it did seem at some points that Nebraska just did not want to win. They were trying to give uh, Illinois the game and just figure out some ways to give Illinois a chance to get back in that game. But um, they got the win. And again, it was thanks to that defense. It, it cannot be understated the job that Tony White has done with this defense so far because the 3-3-5 isn't an easy defense to pick up in one offseason. Um, and I wasn't convinced that they had the size and athleticism up front to really challenge teams this season i thought this was going to be a big growing season for that defense um but credit to tony white and matt rule they've gotten everyone on the defensive side of the ball to buy in quickly and understand their assignments uh, on friday really they played fast all game they made the right decisions didn't allow really any blown coverages um and they were virtually unblockable and that's the part that i kind of want to talk about uh with illinois because what the hell is going on with them? I mean, Nebraska's defense is good. Again, I want to give them all the credit in the world, something that Brett Bielema didn't do after the game. Um, but Illinois managed just 21 carries, I mean, 21 yards on 19 carries in that game. Um, and in fact, their first four carries of the game got them 21 yards. From there on out, they netted zero yards on 15 carries the rest of the game. Um, and, you know, Brett Bielema was, you know, rationally irate after the game. You know, he had really good reason because the offensive line just has been overpowered in every game, but I think the worst part for them is that this offensive line seems to be getting worse. I mean, this was by far their worst display of the season, and they've had plenty of really bad, um, bad plays with that offensive line. Um, and it goes without saying that Illinois is not a team that can survive, even in the dismal, dismal, disgusting Big Ten West. Um, Illinois is not a team that can survive without a competent offensive line. Um, and it's really a shame, I think, that the offensive line and the running back production have been this poor because, I mean, I have to say Reggie Love and Josh McCray haven't been particularly impressive either. Like the gap they have at running back with Chase Brown gone is evident. Part of that is on the offensive line and part of, the, part of that is also on the running back room. But, um, you know, what's kind of crazy is Illinois might not finish the season with a single rusher over 500 yards. And after last year where they um, were one of the better running teams in the Big Ten, it's just crazy. But 
it's a shame that their offensive line is playing this poorly because I still believe in Luke Altmaier. I've said it a lot of weeks. I mean, he's got talent. He's got really good ball placement, and he's got really underrated mobility. Um, you know, I've stood by him a lot this season, and the box score doesn't always hold up. You know, especially considering he has more interceptions than touchdowns on the season. But he's got a good arm. And he's just running for his life on almost every single play. And you can tell on the few pass plays he has where he drops back and there isn't immediate pressure in his face, he's almost uncomfortable or surprised. Like, wait, I have time to step into this throw? Um, and it's just he does not look comfortable out there. He looks like a young quarterback, um, mainly because of this porous offensive line. Um, but also, I think for how much Illinois has struggled as a team this season, I think equal blame falls on that defense. Um because this was a defense that I and many others thought would have one of the best defensive fronts in the entire country. Um, you know, at this point, and, and that's just not the case. And at this point, the reality is setting in that Illinois is definitely not going to make a bowl game this season. They've won three of their past 11 games dating back to last season. And at this point, you know, that time when Illinois led the Big Ten West in late October and it seemed like it was their division to lose... It seems like a distant memory, and this team is not playing anywhere close to the way they were at the first half of last season. So, like I said, they're not making a bowl game, and if there's any Illinois fans out there that are still holding out hope, I would you know, pray you kind of let go of that hope and don't set yourself up for disappointment. Um, and now it's time to look at Brett Bielema because he has to take a real hard look at his program, the direction it's going in, and just find some positives to take out of the, these you know, next six games for them, um, and just find some sort of something positive to take into next year. Because, you know, I'll 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 be blunt. If they play like this next year, and if they're looking at another four or five win season, um, where bowl game is kind of out of reach before you know even the end of October, Illinois might have no choice but to move on to him. I don't know where else they'd get, but I mean, Brett Bielema really does have to take a real hard look at this program right now, um, because I I am just aghast at how bad Illinois has looked so far this season. Um, but that being said, credit to Nebraska. They got a win. Like I said before, they are well on their way to getting to a bowl game, which would be a successful first season for Matt Rule. And moving on to Columbus, Ohio, where Ohio State uh, took on the undefeated Maryland Terrapins. Um, and it was a great game in that first half. Honestly, the Terps dominated the first half, um, but they really beat themselves to allow that game to be tied at 10 heading into halftime. And part of the credit does go to that Ohio State defense because they, they really hung in there. They survived an electric start from Maryland where, you know, Ohio State had that botched snap on the punt. And then a few plays later, they have a one-handed touchdown grab. Um, so really all the momentum from the get-go was in Maryland's favor. But Ohio State's defense set, um, stepped up. They hung in there. They got a stop on fourth and short which is something they seem to be doing virtually every week now. Um, and also, you know, Maryland got set up first and goal at the six, and Ohio State managed to hold them to a field goal. Um, but at the same time, like I said, Maryland also really beat themselves in that first half. Um, they had a touchdown catch that would have put them up 14 nothing, but the ball just barely hit the ground, so that was incomplete. Um, Talia Tungaviola, he threw a pick six on a route that Josh Proctor was just sitting on and staring at Talia's eyes. So it was a really, it was a good play by Proctor, but an equally bad decision by Talia. Um, and then another inexplicable decision by Talia. Um, you know, they had, they were driving late, uh, you know, really close to the end of halftime. They were just trying to set up a field goal. They had a chip shot set up. Um, they were trying to what looked like take another shot at the end zone. And then they didn't have any timeouts and Talia just inexplicably checked it down about five yards past the line of scrimmage, got tackled in bounds. And the clock expired, and that was just a really bad decision by him. They could have gone into halftime up 13-10. to 10. Instead, like I said, it was 10-10 at halftime. Um, 
and just you know a lot of drop passes throughout the first half too that could have changed the dynamic of the game um and then the terps did come out to their credit in the third quarter they scored on their first possession of the second half to make it 17 10 but really from there on out they were stonewalled by this ohio state defense um and the buckeyes showed exactly why they are one of the nation's best defenses and kyle mccord was once again nearly perfect in the fourth quarter ohio state ended up winning 37 to 17 uh so starting on the terp side I think I walked away from that game convinced that this is a top 25 caliber team. I was really tempted to include Maryland in my top 25 this week. They just missed out. Um, But there's no doubt that they are in that conversation. They are definitely one of the 30 or so best teams in college football. And with Michigan and Penn State both coming to College Park in November, I think they have a real shot at pulling off an upset considering they they have a bye week in there and, you know, plenty of winnable games for them to kind of, you know, get this team right and get um get to the point where they're playing their best football heading into november um but if they do want to pull off one of those upsets they cannot beat themselves like they did on saturday like i said too many drop passes um and then once the game kind of went off script in the third quarter once ohio state's defense started to you know play with momentum or steal the momentum from maryland um once that happened talia started to maybe panic and was making much worse decisions than he was in the first half um because the, the fact of the matter is they can't count on shutting down Michigan and Penn State's run games like they did Ohio State. Uh, first of all, hats off to Maryland, who, um, you know, really did not allow Ohio State to get anything going on the run game. You know, that was a great, um, great game by that Maryland defensive front, but they can't count on doing that against Michigan and Penn State. Um, and that means when they play Michigan and Penn State, every possession is going to mean more when Maryland has the ball. Uh, so they won't be able to afford really any mistakes. They won't be able to afford, um, you know, a mistake like we saw Talia Tungabayola make at the end of the first half. They're going to need every single point and they're going to need every single play. Um, and that's the part of Talia's game that I'm just not sure he can get through. I love him as a quarterback. I love him as a leader. And, you know, I knew coming into the season, Maryland would be a real problem for the big three in the big 10. Um, but him playing a complete mistake free game of football against elite competition isn't something that I'm convinced he can do, um, mainly because he just hasn't proven me wrong in his career. Um, but nonetheless, you know, even if Maryland is not able to pull off one of those upsets, they're still staring at a nine-win regular season. And that seems like the li- likeliest scenario. That could mean they finish the season ranked, they get into a pretty good bowl game, like, you know, probably Capital One Bowl um, at worst. Um, but that could lay the opportunity for a nice bowl game, best bowl game they've been in in a long time, a 10-win season, and, and a top-20 finish. Um, so I think, you know, even in that scenario where they don't pull off any upsets, um, it would be a great season uh, for this Maryland football team. Mike Loxley definitely has his program heading in the right direction, even with Talia leaving and graduating after this season. I think Maryland is built to stay relevant in this new Big Ten um, that figures to be the strongest conference in the country, but I think Maryland will stay around and continue to be a perennial bowl team who's capable of pulling off an upset or two every few seasons. Um, and then moving to the Ohio State part. Because I know everyone wants to dissect this game, how you know, Ohio State did not look dominant for the majority of the game. Um, and really, there are three concerns that I have about Ohio State moving forward. Uh, two of them, I think they can live with. They don't have to necessarily fix in order for them to win the Big Ten and get to the college football playoff. Um, but one of them is 
a really bad situation, but I'll run through them right now. My first concern is just how quickly Ryan Day, with his play calling, is able to get Kyle McCord into a rhythm because Kyle McCord's gotten off to a slow start in virtually every game so far this season, and especially these past two. You know, his accuracy has been inconsistent in the first half. Um, even on screen passes and intermediate throws, it just kind of seems like he's pushing it rather than just letting it sling. Um, and I think it's clear that he has to get into some sort of rhythm, get a few easy completions, slowly work the ball downfield um, a bit at a time until he can really, until he feels comfortable um, to throw dots anywhere on the field and kind of uh, like we've seen in the past two fourth quarters. So I think for Ohio State to really reach their potential, Ryan Day has to figure out a way with his play calling um, or just figure out a way to call plays to get Kyle McCord in that rhythm earlier. Because, I mean, if Kyle McCord plays the rest of the season, like he has the past two fourth quarters, um, Ohio State doesn't need a run game. <laughs> like, um, they, they can be a really dangerous team with just that because he has been lights out in the fourth quarter. Um, but I think if Ohio State really wants to become an elite team, they're going to have to figure out a way for him to find that rhythm earlier in the game. Um, my, my second concern for Ohio State is their defensive ends. Because um, I think Ohio State would have you know, the potential of being a truly special unit on defense, maybe an all-time great defense if these defensive ends lived up to their hype. Because coming into the season, J uh, Jack Sawyer and JT Tuimolawau were supposed to be two All-American candidates, and they just have not done anything all season. They continue to be a non-factor on almost every job back. I mean, JT Tuimolawau finally had some big plays in that game, but if you go back and watch the tape, the only big plays he made were when he wasn't blocked, and that's kind of been his story of the entire season. Um, he's the best defender in the country when he isn't blocked, but when you know you have one or two guys on him, he just cannot shed blockers. And what I've noticed with these defensive ends is, you know, none of them are really using their hands or have any refined tech pass pass rushing technique when it comes to getting after the quarterback. And the, I remember back in the day, guys like Joey Bosa, Sam Hubbard, um, those guys had, well, they weren't just freak athletes, but they had a bag of pass rushing moves that they utilized in college. And that's why, I mean, they were just getting after the quarterback whenever they were um, had, had one guy lined up on them. And we just don't see that anymore out of Ohio State defensive ends. Larry Johnson just isn't developing these defensive ends the same way he used to. Because um, virtually, I mean, for the past few seasons now, I think going back to really like 2019, every single Ohio State defensive end just relies on bull rushing tackles, and it isn't working. Like I remember Chase Young did that, um, but he was effective at it because he was an absolute freak. And none of these guys on the Ohio State defense are Chase Young. I mean, they got a lot of athletes, but Chase Young was a different breed. Um, so it's, I think it's concerning that we're six or five games into the season now for Ohio State. And they're still not getting pressure on the quarterback with four down linemen. They need to blitz in order to get after the quarterback. Um, that being said, the defense has been great and has been one of the best units in the entire country, despite the defensive end struggling like this. So I think that's a testament to the rest of the unit. You know, corner cornerbacks have been great. There haven't been any blown coverages, no real big plays given up. They've been as sure of tackling as a defense as there is in college football and what I think is the best interior defensive line in the country. So again, like this can still be a championship defense without these defensive ends really stepping up. But you got to figure um, when they I mean, there's going to come a point where one of these guys is going to have to get after a quarterback. You're going to have to see a strip sack from Jack Sawyer, JT Tuimolawau, Caden Curry. Um, you got to figure these guys are going to have to step up at some point and make a play. And I just really haven't seen it. And so I, I'm genuinely concerned about that. But again, this can still be a championship level defense without these defensive ends becoming all Big Ten or all American um, type defensive ends. But 
My third concern for Ohio State, and this is the one they need to figure out. Um, they cannot win a Big Ten championship or get to the college football playoff without fixing this, and it's their offensive line. And really just the run blocking. Because um, as Joe Klatt illustrated during the broadcast against Maryland, the linemen could not get off of the Maryland defensive linemen and get to that second level and start to block the linebackers and defensive backs. And it didn't get better throughout the entire game. It was 60 minutes of them being locked on um, defensive linemen. There might be a small hole that you know Chip Trainum or Mayan Williams hit, but then they're swarmed and they're just they could not get more than two or three yards in attempt. Um, they weren't getting blown up behind the line very much, which was nice to see. I mean, I guess those, I mean, the uh, offensive linemen weren't getting manhandled by the Maryland defensive linemen, but there were just no, there was no room, um, for Ohio State to run the ball. And, you know, thanks in part to an 18 yard sack, which in college, of course, affects the rushing statistics. Um, but even so, with that, Ohio State averaged less than two yards per carry against Maryland. And this is Maryland. This is, I mean, they have a formidable defense. They're better than last year. Like I said, this is a top 25 caliber team. Um, but this is not Penn State or Michigan. It's going to be even tougher to run the ball against them. Um, so, I mean, something has to change there. I don't know if it's a personnel issue, if it's a strategy error, or these guys are just out of shape and they just, you know, don't have the desire to get to the second level, but something has to change. Um, cause I don't think it is a talent problem because the pass blocking has been fine. Um, Josh Fryer, their left tackle, he got abused on one sack, uh, that was on third down in the first half. But for the most part, every sack that I can remember for this season for Ohio State has been other than that one has been a communication error where you know people just slide to the wrong guy there's a miscommunication and some guy comes in on blocks like these guys are not being um abused in one-on-one situations they can line up and block guys um when it comes to pass protection and those miscommunications are you know diminishing as the season goes on i think their pass protection is improving game over game and you know for the most part kyle mccord when he drops back to throw he has time so it's not pass protection that i think it's the problem it's this run blocking and if this continues into the penn state game in two weeks kyle mccord's gonna have to end up throwing the ball 50 times and as much as i love him and as much as i you know think uh, buckeye nation can be a little bit tough on him um and you know he's looked really good. He's not C.J. Stroud. He's not at that point in his career. I don't think he can go out and throw the ball 50 times against Penn State and expect that game to go well because that is a ball hawking defense. Um, so you know, like the concerns with Kyle McCord getting into a rhythm and these defensive ends stepping up. Um, I guess those might be more nice to haves for Ohio State because of how great the rest of this team is. But I mean, they got two weeks. I mean, they got one week really. They got this Purdue game to figure out the offensive line, figure out that run blocking scheme before Penn State comes to town. Because if they don't figure it by then, that game could get ugly. And I wouldn't be surprised to see, you know, that Ohio State offense look lost against Penn State um, and see a blowout actually emerge in Columbus. I wouldn't be shocked if this offensive line doesn't get fixed. So, um, you know, these were three concerns that I had about Ohio State for really the entire season. But the fact that they are still there five weeks into the season after their bye week against Maryland at home, it's very concerning. So in my book, Ohio State's still a, st- a top five team, but you know they they are on that verge of you know maybe they aren't as close to Penn State and Michigan as we think. I mean we'll find out soon enough, but um, there are definitely some concerns in Columbus for those Buckeyes. And uh, believe it or not, we can actually jump right into Week Six superlatives. Um, and the team of the week uh, for Week Six, I'm going to give it to the Wisconsin Badgers. Um, I know some people may think Michigan deserves it after they absolutely throttled Minnesota on the road, but I gave Michigan their flowers last week. We've established they're finally playing like the team we expected them to be coming into this season. Um, I think anyone that's 
seen Michigan and Minnesota play could have predicted that game turning out the way it did. So um, I actually want to give some recognition to Wisconsin, who hasn't earned Team of the Week honors yet this year. Uh, they played a Rutgers team that I think on Saturday cemented their place as a definitive bowl team and one of the seven best teams in the Big Ten. I know they got the loss, but um, they really had Wisconsin in a dogfight in the first half. I mean, this just is not the same old Rutgers team from the past 10 years that you could beat by simply showing up. Um, like I said, they had Wisconsin in a dogfight that first half. They had an opportunity to make it a one-possession game heading into halftime, um, but a bad throw and a bad decision by Gavin Wimsatt um, led to a 95-yard pick six by Ricardo Hallman that gave uh, Wisconsin a 17-0 lead at halftime, and that really allowed Wisconsin to put on cruise control and coast to a win in the second half. They ended up winning 24-13. to uh, but the reason I'm giving Wisconsin Team of the Week honors is because they've continued to improve every week, um, is particularly the offensive line, because um, I think they had their biggest test of the season against a formidable Rutgers front, and they managed nearly five yards per carry on the day. And it was just good to finally see a little bit more consistency from this uh, Wisconsin offensive line over the past few weeks. Um, and I, they're starting to get back to really that wisconsin mo of just being able to run the ball and control the clock um because i think i know we were all expecting wisconsin to run this air raid coming into the season and i think we can tell now that was a little bit of a lie um but speaking of this air raid you know i would like to see tanner mordecai take a little bit more of a step up from game manager and make more plays downfield um but i do understand the game script against Rutgers didn't really allow for that it could have been maybe irresponsible for them to throw the ball a little bit too much and allow Rutgers to get back in that game um and it is nice to see him making plays with his legs he does have underrated mobility um so I think maybe that time for Tanner Mordecai to step up and make more plays is you know coming down coming down the pipe we'll probably see in the back half of the season um but I think it's evident that I mean, Wisconsin is just continuing to get better on a week-to-week basis. I mentioned their offensive line, and their defense is also starting to come together. Um, you know, they still give up some plays in, in pass defense. They're definitely not perfect, but they're sixth nationally in interceptions, um, so they are making the plays to make up for the yardage they give up through the air. They're top 25 nationally in sacks per game, um, and they are 40, 43rd in third down defense, 32nd in penalties, so they're not really beating themselves. Again, it's, I guess this isn't an overwhelmingly dominant Wisconsin team that'll just punch you in the mouth and dominate both lines of scrimmage like we're used to with some of the great Wisconsin teams from the past couple decades. Um, but they're solid. And like I said, they're getting better. Um, and, you know, this is a, a team that won't beat themselves. They're winning the turnover battle. Um, and they have a run game that's finally starting to resemble Wisconsin of old. Um, and I, you know, based off what I've seen this year from Wisconsin and the rest of the teams in that Big Ten West, I think Wisconsin is head and shoulders better than everyone else in that division. Um, I don't think the only game they'll be underdogs in the rest of the season is Ohio State. Um, but they get Ohio State the week after they play Penn State at home under the lights. So, I mean, there are definitely some serious upset watch there because I think Wisconsin with their schedule definitely has the, the time to kind of perfect their game, get right a little bit and be playing their best football heading into that game. Um, even if they don't pull off that upset, I think Wisconsin is looking at a 10-2 season. They'll have an opportunity to really challenge the Big Ten East winner in that game. Um, could be a rematch against Ohio State. Who knows? And like I said before, I think Wisconsin is going to be playing its best football at the end of the season. Um, and they, like Maryland, will be set up to be in a really a, a big bowl game. You know, They could get into one of the New Year's Six bowl games and finish as a top 15, maybe even top 10 team. Um, so in, despite that painful loss to Washington State at the beginning of the season, again, a Washington State team that's a lot better than maybe we gave them credit for when they did pull off that upset. 
um, Luke Fickle is you know looking to be looking to have a very successful first season. Still, I think I think if they lose any game to one of the Big Ten West teams, it would be a massive disappointment. But we'll cross that bridge when we get there. As far as I'm concerned, from what I've seen, Wisconsin's easily the best Big Ten West team, um, and they're going to be a, a formidable opponent to whoever wins that Big Ten East. And the game of the week was uh, Purdue. Uh, traveling to Kinnick Stadium to take on Iowa, and it was really an ugly start for Purdue. They allowed Caleb Johnson to get loose for a 67-yard touchdown run to the house where he went completely untouched on Iowa's second possession. Uh, Purdue accounted for less than 100 yards on his first six possessions, um, but even so, only faced a 10-0 deficit thanks to um, one of the better games that Purdue has played defensively this season. Um, and they had a really nice drive right before halftime, which was capped off by a beautiful play by Hudson Card, where he maneuvered the pocket, extended the play, rolled out right, found TJ Sheffield, uh, threw a strike, um, which allowed TJ Sheffield to take off uh, for the touchdown, a 45-yard touchdown to make it 10-7 at half. But um, Purdue's offense was stifled in the second half. The defense kept a minute. You know, they were down only 20-7 to entering the fourth quarter. Um, and they had a few explosive plays on a two-minute-long touchdown drive to make it 20-14 to with three minutes left. Um, and credit to Purdue's defense. Again, they got the ball uh, right back to their offense. Um, so Purdue had the ball with two minutes to go. Um, they had, you know, 75 yards to go take the lead, but Hudson Card was sacked on the first play, which kind of ruined that drive. Um, Iowa ended up emerging with a 20 to 14 win, despite being outgained by 52 yards, giving up nine more first downs than they got, going just three for 13 on third down and possessing the ball for only 24 and a half minutes. Despite all that, Iowa was able to get the win. Um, and really, it kind of felt like Purdue was the better team on a play-to-play basis in this game. Um, but Iowa was simply able to dominate the line of scrimmage when Purdue had the ball. That's what this game came down to. Um, but also, what I think it came down to was you know, one of these teams was a veteran team who's been in a lot of ugly games and knows how to win games like this, while Purdue is still finding its footing and still finding their identity. Um, and that's what I think Purdue has really been lacking so far this season is an identity. You know, there's been games where their defense has played well and kept them in it, and others where their offenses had to play catch-up the entire game. There's been games where they've been able to run the ball and others where they had to completely abandon the run and go full air raid. Um, so I just feel like every game, it's almost been like a different Purdue team. And, you know, when you have a new coaching staff and a lot of player turnover like they did this season, that's a dangerous way to play. Um, and for Iowa, this is as typical of a win as you could have expected. Um, you know, good for Iowa for getting to 5-1 and one despite all the noise around their program, particularly their offense. Um, but they travel to Wisconsin this weekend, and I'll preview this game later on in the episode, but this one's for all the marbles. They gotta win this game, um, because a win, I think, could right everything that's gone wrong so far this year. It would put them in the driver's seat for the Big Ten West, um, but a loss, I think, would just confirm what we know about Illinois, I mean, Iowa, and that they're frauds. <laughs> they're not real contenders, but I'll get into that game a little bit later in this episode. And then the final part of recapping week six, my helmet stickers for great individual performances. Uh, to kick things off, I'm going to give two helmet stickers to a couple Ohio State Buckeyes. The first, wide receiver Marvin Harrison, who had eight catches for 163 yards and a touchdown on the day. Um, really, until that fourth quarter, he was the only option for Ohio State offensively. Um, if I was tracking the game correctly, there was a point where Kyle McCord was like 5 of 7 for about 100 yards when he was targeting um, Marvin Harrison and something like two for nine or something when he was targeting anyone else. So um, he was really the reason Ohio State was able to stay in that game and eventually, um, you know, extend the lead and get a 20-point 20, 20 win. 
Um, and the other helmet sticker I'll give it to from Ohio State is Josh Proctor, who I mentioned before. He had that pick six for Ohio State's lone touchdown in the first half, which helped him keep it tied. But he had a great game all around. He had seven tackles, one and a half tackle for losses, um, and he was a weapon in that pass game. I think he only gave up one catch. Um, he had a... Um, Tulia Tunga Viola had a 2.8 passer rating when he was targeting Josh Proctor, so he was a force all game long. Um, staying with that game, I'm going to give a helmet sticker to uh, safety Bo Braid from Maryland. He had eight tackles, which led the team. He had a tackle for loss and two pass breakups. He was in on a lot of uh, a lot of plays. Felt like any every time there was a, a big play, Bo Braid was there in it. Um, and sticking with the defensive side of the ball, going to give one to Michigan defensive end Mason Graham. He and that Michigan front was a force all game. I mean, that Minnesota game was felt like it was over before it really got started. Uh, Mason Graham had six tackles, a sack, and two tackle for two tackles for loss. Um, and I'm going to continue to stick with the the defense this week. Uh, a lot of recognition, you know, because there's not a whole lot of offense in these Big Ten football games. Uh, but Wisconsin cornerback Ricardo Hallman, who I mentioned before, he had that uh, 95-yard pick six to make it 17-0 at halftime for Wisconsin. He also had a pass breakup, um, an, an 89 uh, PFF grade, and he didn't allow a catch all game. So really you know, shut down job by uh, Wisconsin's best cornerback. Um, and then I guess I can jump back to the offensive side of the ball for a bit. Iowa running back Caleb Johnson. He had 147 total yards on the day against Purdue and a touchdown. Uh, was really the entire pulse for Iowa's offense most of the day, with the exception of a couple long pass plays. Um, but then, of course, returning back to uh, the defensive side of the ball, Northwestern uh, linebacker Xander Mueller. Uh, they took on Howard in a 23-20 win. I didn't touch on that game, but, you know, talked about it um, on our website, the floor slap, if you want to go t- check that out. Uh, but Xander Mueller had a huge day. He had seven tackles, two sacks, and three TFLs against Howard. Um, and then the final helmet sticker for week six, Nebraska safety, Isaac Gifford. Um, he was, you know, he's been probably their best uh, player in that defensive backfield. Um, all season long, he's been, you know, a force in run support and he can, you know, man up receivers. Um, against Illinois, he had eight tackles, which led the team. He had a tackle for loss and three pass breakups. So he was a really force in that pass defense that, um, I mean, the entire defense that really shut down Illinois. So a lot of great performances across the Big Ten, but those are my helmet sticker winners. Next, before I get into previewing Week 7's slate of action, I want to take a quick pulse check on the college football playoff because I haven't feel like I've uh, talked too much about it this year, but we are officially past the halfway point in the college football regular season. And I feel like in years past, this is about the time where you can, um, you know, start to see how the season's going to unfold, who the legitimate college football playoff contenders are. Um, and you can start to see that light at the end of the road. But as I've said, you know, in the preseason and throughout this year, this is the most wide open of college season of college football we've had since at least 2007. Um, and there are just so many good to great teams that have a legitimate path to the playoff, but really no elite to like perfect teams um, that you can say definitively, yeah, they're going to be playing for a national championship. And I think that's kind of what we've been used to. You know, the past two seasons with Georgia, how dominant they've been. That 2020 Alabama team was an all-time great offense. 2019 LSU was so great. You even think about, you know, 2016 Clemson um, with that Deshaun Watson team and Trevor Lawrence's freshman year in 2018. Those were both all-time great teams. So I feel like we're just got, we've been so used to there being a dominant team in college football every season. It just feels weird that that's not the case this year. Um, but with that brings unpredictability. 
And so at this point, there's a dozen plus teams that have a legitimate path to the playoff. Um, so it's really hard to, I guess, try to say you know, these are the teams that have the best chance. But I did, you know, think of a scenario that I, I wanted to run by you. And it's what if there are five one loss power five champs, five teams that all win their conference, have the same record and all have impressive resumes. One of those teams is going to be left out. So let's say for argument's sake, um, you know, Alabama has one loss right now to Texas at home. What if they, you know, went out, play undefeated Georgia, um, and win the SEC championship? Um, you gotta figure Alabama secures a spot with a win over undefeated Georgia in this scenario. Um, and let's say Michigan, they lose to Penn State. Um, in their 10th game of the year, that would be their first real test of the season, but then recover with wins against Maryland and Ohio State. They get to the Big Ten Championship and beat whoever comes out of the West. They're a 12 and 1 champion. And then let's say Florida State, they drop a game somewhere in the regular season, but they still win the ACC. They're 12 and 1 champion. Um, let's say USC, same case. They drop a game somewhere during the season, maybe someone like Utah, but they recover. They win the Pac 12. And then let's say uh, Texas, they went out, get to the Big 12 championship and avenge their loss against Oklahoma. Um, and then there go 12 and one. So in this scenario, all four teams will, will all have had really great wins. They will have all won their power five conference, but one of them gets left out. Who is it? As I mentioned before, in this scenario, I feel like Alabama's kind of a lock with that win over undefeated Georgia. I also feel like Texas would be a lock because they have that win over Alabama and they will have avenged their only loss of the season. So that means we have two spots left between Michigan, Florida State, and USC. My gut would say Florida State is the odd one out, mainly because they probably have the worst loss of this group because, you know, you look at their schedule, they have Duke, Miami, Florida um, left on their schedule. You know, they probably lose one of those three games if they're going to lose one. Um, and, that you know, Duke is a great team this year, that's for sure, but they could definitely end up with eight or nine wins. And, you know, even if um, best case scenario happens for Duke, I think, you know, Losing to Duke just won't be the same as losing to the Penn State or to Oklahoma or something like that. So they would likely have the worst loss. And also Florida State just hasn't, hasn't been dominating teams this year. I mentioned it before as when I put out my, my, my top 25 rankings every week. They just, while other teams seem to be getting better each week, I don't, can't really say the same for Florida State. Um, so I feel like Florida State would be the one left out in this scenario. But again, it's so hard to predict because a very real scenario is there's 11-1 Florida State playing an undefeated, you know, top three ranked UNC in the ACC championship because they don't play during the regular season. So what happens if, they, you know, they go up against a 12-0 North Carolina team who's ranked second or third in the country? Um, and they, you know, go beat them. How do you leave them out after a win like that right before the playoff? Um, so if that's the case, if that happens, I would say the next team that would be out would probably be Michigan. Um, because again, they would have lost to Penn State. Well, to be determined if Maryland will end up being a ranked win, but it's very possible where their only ranked win would be Ohio State. Um, especially if they play like a three or four loss team in the Big Ten Championship and maybe even struggle with them a little bit. You know, you can say all you want about how talented this Michigan roster is um, and how this is the best you know team they've had under Jim Harbaugh and the best team they've had in 20 years, yada, yada, yada. Um, but if that's the case, it'll be really hard to argue that Michigan has a top four resume because... I, I know the college football playoff committee, they judge different teams by different standards. Some teams they'll be like, oh, this is the more talented team. We'll go with them. And in other cases, they'll go by the resume. Um, and I just, you know, feel like because we're not the SEC, we won't get the benefit of the doubt saying that Michigan is, you know, more talented or whatever. Um, but again, in this scenario, Michigan could very well end up being left out of the playoff as a 12 and 1 Big Ten champion. 
Um, and then meanwhile, you know, anything can happen in that Pac-12. You know, the, the conference seems strong enough that any one loss champion would get in, but you never know. You really can never tell. Um, but anyway, like I said before, we're halfway through the season and we still have a dozen plus teams that have a legitimate path to the college football playoff. I didn't even mention Louisville, who just beat the brakes off of Notre Dame in that fourth quarter to get, to get one of the best wins of the entire college football season. Um, and I don't think this has happened before since we've instituted the playoff where we're this late into the season and there is just, there's, I mean, just so many paths can happen, like that can reasonably happen. Um, so personally, what I think is going to happen, how I think the rest of the season is going to shake out, um, I think the Pac-12 beats itself. I think they have a two-loss champion. I just don't, they have so many really good teams, but none of those teams are head and shoulders above another one. And I just think there's too much competition and too, I mean, too many difficult opponents you have to play on a week-to-week basis as we get into the, the final stretch there in that Pac-12 race. Um, I just, I, I don't think any of those teams is, is better that much better than the rest of the conference that they can get through um, get through this slate unscathed. Um, I think it's very likely that the Pac-12 has a two-loss champion. And I do think Texas wins out and beats Oklahoma in a rematch. I think they are a 12-1 and Big 12 champion. And with that win over Alabama, I think that kind of secures them a spot in the playoff. Um, I think Georgia runs the table. Um, you know, I, I know they're, they're definitely not as dominant they've, as they've been in the past two seasons, but I just don't see a team in the SEC that can really knock them off. So I think Georgia runs the table, goes 13-0. Um, and I think Florida State does drop a game, but wins the ACC and gets a quality win in that championship game, goes 12-1. and And I think we have a one-loss Big Ten champion. I could see that being um, Penn State. I could see that being Ohio State. I could see that being Michigan. I just think the gap between those three teams is so small. I have a hard time seeing um, one of those three teams going undefeated, especially with Maryland now in the mix. That is a tough, as I mentioned before, that is going to be a tough game. Um, so I think Whoever wins the Big Ten East emerges with one loss, but then wins the Big Ten. So in this scenario, it's the Pac-12 being left out. So what I'm predicting is going to happen is going to be a, a Texas, Florida State, Georgia, and then Big Ten champion um, college football playoff. Which kind of brings me to my next point. What are the chances of two teams from the Big Ten making it in like it happened last year? Um, so the best case, I mean, the, the best scenario the Big Ten has for getting two teams in is Ohio State being that that fourth team because Ohio State does have that win over Notre Dame to be determined how impressive that is at the end of the season. But I feel like even if, you know, Notre Dame season kind of goes downwards, I feel like they will still end the te- season ranked. Um, and regardless, that's a better win than anything Penn State or Michigan has in the non-conference. So the best case that um, the Big Ten has for getting a second team in is probably for Ohio State to either lose to Penn State or Michigan, um, but win one of those other games and not make it to the Big Ten championship. Likely a scenario is probably Ohio State beating Penn State at home and then losing to Michigan. Um, and then, you know, Big Ten has got to hope that Wisconsin finishes 10-2 and um, and is a you know top 15 or so team and challenges Michigan in the Big Ten title game, just kind of establishes the general strength of this conference. Um but if that's the case, then Ohio State would be looking at having three top twenty-five wins. You know, Penn State, Maryland, if that if they you know they finish nine and three, and Wisconsin, and their lone loss being on the road to a top two team. Um, you got to figure Michigan would be in the top two then. Um, so I feel like that resume for an eleven and one Ohio State team with three top twenty-five wins and a tight road loss against a top two team. 
I think that resume is good enough for them to get into the college football playoff against, I mean, over any two-loss champion, regardless of conference. Um, so really, I mean, if you're a Big Ten fan wanting multiple teams from the Big Ten in the playoff, what you have to root for is just every contender to lose. And you just want um, as many two-loss conference champions um, as possible. Because if there is going to be a team that makes the playoff without winning their conference, it's probably going to be from the Big Ten. You know, the SEC doesn't have that, you know, powerhouse division anymore. Um, it's going to be from the Big Ten. And it's definitely less likely than it was last year, but it's on the table. Um, it's just, it's like I said, it's so much harder to predict this season than in years past. And I think that's what makes this season just so darn fun. And now I can get into previewing week seven and giving you my five Big Ten betting locks. We have six Big Ten games on the docket this weekend. Um, and I'll talk about five of them. The one game I won't really talk about is UMass at Penn State. Um, obviously, Penn State should handle that with relative ease. They're warming up for Ohio State the following weekend. Um, the line is set at 41.5 for Penn State. I'm honestly shocked a line even came out for this game. And the over-under set at 55.5. My official pick for this game would be the under at 55.5, but I won't get too much into this game. And if you're betting on UMass at Penn State, you might want to consider calling 1-800-GAMBLER. Um, but anyway, I'll dive into my picks. The first game I'm going to talk about um, is Ohio State at noon. It's on Peacock, traveling to Purdue. They are 19.5-point favorites. Um, and frankly, Purdue, like I said before, they've done a lot of things well in, in spurts this season, but really have not come close to anything like a, a complete game. Um, but Purdue, they need to take all the pieces that they've done well at times throughout the season and bring it together into a perfect mistake-free game in order to keep this close. Um, you know, given the history of hosting top five teams, and I'm sure everyone remembers the last time Ohio State traveled to West Lafayette when they lost 49 to 20 in 2018. Um, you know, with that history, part of me thinks it's possible. Um, you know, part of me wouldn't be shocked if Purdue can somehow, you know, pull off the perfect game, bring everything together and upset, uh, the top five Ohio State Buckeyes this weekend. But at the end of the day, logic really needs to win here. And this isn't 2018. Ohio State doesn't have one of the worst defenses in the power five. Um, the Buckeye defense is simply too good. Purdue, plain and simple, is not going to be able to run the ball on Ohio State. It's really going to come down to offensively for Purdue, Hudson Card, making plays with his arm and his legs and not turning the ball over. I'm sure, um, you know, they'll have some trick plays in their pocket that could deliver a big play and spark some momentum for Purdue. Um, but at the end of the day, Carr needs to have his best game of the season, period. Um, and on the other side, Ohio State's offensive line needs to play a lot better. That much is obvious. I mean, Iowa <laughs> could run the ball on Purdue last week. Um, so I can't imagine Ohio State will face the same struggles against Purdue that they did against Maryland. And if they do, that's a major red flag for Ohio State as far as their chances the rest of the season. Um, but if Purdue wants to keep this close and have any chance of pulling off the upset, they're going to need to swarm that line of scrimmage. And they're going to have to, once again, take away that run game and force Kyle McCord to beat them with his arm early like don't give them any easy completions um in fact if i was purdue i'd probably play a lot of cover zero and pretty much say if you're going to beat us you're going to have to beat us over the top um and make some difficult throws down the field something that kyle mccord is certainly capable of doing um but again like if i'm purdue i'm saying mccord you beat us over the top you're gonna have to throw for 500 yards to beat us um and you'll and if he does that if he does complete a lot of deep balls early on and throws for 500 yards you'll just have to accept that um but i think purdue's only chance in this game is forcing kyle mccord to make those deep throws early and hoping that trend of his poor first halves continue and allows purdue to kind of get an early an early lead that they can work with um but at the end of the day 
I just have a hard time believing that Purdue can do everything that I outlined in order to keep this close. Um, frankly, I'd be surprised to see them score more than 14. Um, and I don't think Ohio State should have a problem hanging 30 on them. This line is sitting at 19 and a half. It hasn't moved much. Um, but it's just crazy to think that this line is essentially the same as when Ohio State hosted undefeated Maryland, who is a much better team than Purdue. I think, I think history is playing a little bit into this line. And I think people, um, just don't feel super confident that Ohio State can walk into the stadium and blow them out. Um, but after a sloppy start last week, Ryan Day is going to want to start fast. Um, again, I think part of that slow start last week had to do with the bye week. You know, the under Ryan Day, Ohio State's offense hasn't always come out clicking with that same chemistry after bye week. So I think we saw that again last week. So I think they're going to come out to a fast start. And I ultimately think this is an easy Ohio State win. You know, Purdue can keep it close for a half or so, but... Um, you know, just like Maryland did last week, they kept it close, but Ohio State exploded. And all Ohio State needs is a few possessions to create massive distance between overmatched opponents like Purdue. So um, at 19 and a half, I mean, as long as this is under three touchdowns, I'm 100% confident in Ohio State covering. The second game I'll talk about is the big noon game on Saturday, which uh, it sounds a lot better than it actually does. Uh, Michigan hosting Indiana. The line is set at 33 and a half. And listen, I'm not going to spend too much time on this game because guess what? Indiana is as bad as you think they are. Um, I mean, Michigan beat Nebraska and Minnesota on the road, two teams that are significantly better than Indiana by an average margin of 40 points. This is back home. Again, don't overthink it. Indiana is really bad, especially along that offensive line. I can't imagine they get anything going on offense. Again, barring some, um, you know, maybe trick plays. They did have a bye week. Um, they, there's got to be something in their back pocket that they're going to whip out, but it's not enough to keep this game close. I wouldn't be surprised at all to see Indiana shut out. And again, Mich- I mean, Michigan takes care of the ball. They don't commit a lot of penalties and they've been running the ball better and better each week. So, um, you know, I, I think 35 is a fair line to, to play this up to. Um, it's just Michigan's that much better and you know that they're going to pour it on on Saturday. So Michigan wins easy. Don't overthink this. Indiana's not keeping it close at all. And third, we are going to head over to Piscataway, New Jersey, where the Rutgers Scarlet Knights are taking on Michigan State. And they're a uh, five and a half point favorite, uh, which I think, I guess, seems fair. I think at the preseason, if you said this game, you know, Rutgers would be almost a touchdown favorite. I don't think a lot of people would believe you. But I mean, through halfway this season, Rutgers is definitively the better team than Michigan State. Um, And for Rutgers, I honestly think that Gavin Wimsatt might have to win this one with his arm. Uh, Michigan State's coming off a bye. I'm sure they're looking to hit reset on the season. I'm expecting a totally different energy out of this team than we've seen the past three games since that Mel Tucker situation uh, broke. Um, and they, Michigan State still has a very talented defensive front, and it's going to make it probably just as difficult, if not maybe even more difficult, to run the ball for Rutgers as it was this past weekend when they averaged only around two yards a carry against Wisconsin. Uh, meanwhile, this Michigan State secondary, although it is improved from last year, it's still susceptible. So I think if Gavin Wimsat at any point this year is going to make that jump and start to show some signs of development as a passer, I think this is the game to do it. Um, you know, I think this is the game to maybe you know loosen the leash a little or lengthen the leash on him a little bit, let him throw the ball downfield, and just you know see what happens. Um, because honestly, even if the passing game doesn't click, I just don't see Michigan State being able to score enough points to win. Um, they're going with Kaden Hauser in this game at quarterback, his first career start. Um, and when Rutgers is good, I know people may not believe me, but that stadium um, is a sneaky, difficult place to play um, when fans can show up expecting to win. And there they are on Saturday, that's for sure. Um, you know, 
Hauser is not going to have a run game to lean on, and he's not as mobile as Noah Kim was. Um, so I just, I'm having a hard time seeing ways that Michigan State can put up points, barring any like silly turnovers, like we saw with Gavin Wimsett last week in that pick six. I mean, the past three games, since that Mel Tucker news broke, um, Michigan State has averaged around 11 points a game offensively. Um, and you know, Rutgers is just as good, if not better, defensively than those teams that they struggle to put up points against. Um, so frankly, like I said, as long as Rutgers doesn't you know, commit any silly turnovers in their own territory, uh, I expect Rutgers to win. Um, but the thing is, five and a half is a lot to me. I think this is more like a field goal game. You know, if it goes down below four, I'd be a lot more comfortable taking Rutgers to cover. And if the spread were to balloon up to around seven, I'd be a lot more comfortable with Michigan State. But I don't get the sense that there's going to be a whole lot of movement on this line. So instead, I'm going to go with the under at 41 and a half. Because um, honestly, I'm shocked that this is all the way up at 41 and a half while that Wisconsin-Iowa game, that over-under is set at 36. Um, you know, I don't want to disgrace the entire Michigan State program by saying their offense has been as bad as Iowa, um, but the past three weeks has been pretty darn close. I mean, statistically, they are a worse offense over the past um, three games than Iowa is. And of the group, those four teams, Wisconsin's the best offense. So I'm just surprised that this game has, has an over-under that's five and a half point high five and a half points higher than Wisconsin, Iowa. Um, so, I mean, so using that logic, I'm really confident that this is going to be under 40 points. Again, I would take it all the way down to 40. I think this is going to be more so like a 20 to 16 game. Um, I think defenses is going to set up offenses for some scoring opportunities on both sides. But again, this Michigan State offense is just, is just miserable. And Rutgers is, you know, they're getting better every week. I, I mentioned that about a few teams already, and that's what I love about Rutgers. They're getting better. They know their identity, um, and they don't have a problem winning ugly. And I think that's what they're going to do on Saturday. So I think Rutgers wins. A little hesitant on that spread, but I love the under at 41 and a half. Next, I'm going to look at the Maryland-Illinois game. Um, Illinois travels to Maryland, and they're 13.5-point favorites in that game. And honestly, similar to the Michigan game, like I mentioned before, I'm not overthinking this. Maryland is the vastly better team, the more talented roster, the better coach team on both sides of the ball. I mean, Illinois, they're not getting a new offensive line at any point this season. That same offensive line that we saw muster zero yards on their final 15 carries of the game against Nebraska last last week, that same team is going up against the Maryland team that held Ohio State to under two yards of carry on the road last week. Um, if Illinois wants to keep it close, I mean, it's going to probably fall on Luke Altmeyer again. He has been prone to some mistakes, mainly because of how bad that offensive line has been. But if they're going to keep it close, Altmeyer is probably going to have to throw the ball around 40 times and connect on a lot of deep balls. May, I mean, they can, they're going to have to accept the mistakes he makes, but he's going to have to make a lot of big plays to make up for that. Um, and defensively, they're going to have to force a lot of turnovers. But the thing is, I mean, Illinois hasn't been able to stop the run all year. Maryland is going to be able to lean on the run a lot more than they did last week. So I'm not expecting as many mistakes from Talia. I mean, you could see that offense got a little bit uncomfortable last week against Ohio State when they got off script, when Ohio State started pushing back against that offensive line, when they started getting behind the chains. Um, and that's when Talia started making mistakes. Before that, I mean, he, uh, he he played really, really well, and I expect that trend to continue into Illinois. Like, I don't think Illinois is capable of really disrupting um, this offensive line, the way they've played through half the season so far. And I also believe in Mike Loxley. I mean, this doesn't strike me as a team that's going to be overlooking any opponents. Um, I know they're going to be upset with how that game played out against Ohio State. I think they're going to be coming out hot. Um, and as long as this line doesn't go above 14, I, I love Maryland to cover. Like, I think they are easily two touchdowns better than Illinois. Um, yeah, I'm very confident with them to cover. 
And my fifth and final Big Ten betting lock of Week 7 is going to be the Big Ten game of the week. That's Iowa traveling to Madison to take on Wisconsin in a game that figures to decide the Big Ten West. Um, even though it is early on, I think it's, division is pretty clearly between these two teams, and um, I think the winner should uh, you know, secure their spot at the top of that division. Um, in, Unfortunately, I wish we did have a uh, a better game, you know, for to decide that division though. Um because sim- simply put, Iowa's defense is going to need to score in order to win this game. Um you know, I'm not holding my breath waiting for any new offensive wrinkles from Iowa. I'm not waiting for Deacon Hill to all of a sudden become Josh Allen or even for Caleb Johnson to replicate his performance from last week because they are going up against a much much better defense. Um you know, Iowa is good for I think maximum 13 points offensively. Um, that, and that won't be enough to win this game. I mean, their defense is not only going to have to turn the ball over in plus territory, but they'll probably need to get the ball into the end zone for Iowa to have a chance in this game. Um, and honestly, special teams is likely to come into play too. I mean, whoever wins the field position battle is really going to be set up to win. Like whoever, whoever's offense has to do the least is probably going to win this game. Um, and you know, fortunately for Iowa, they do have the better special teams unit compared to Wisconsin, but Unfortunately for them, Wisconsin is simply the better team. I mean, Tanner Mordecai has only turned the ball over once since the season opener, so I definitely have more faith in Wisconsin, you know, taking care of the ball and not handing Iowa points. Um, you know, Mordecai has become more of a game manager than I expected coming into the season, but as far as this matchup for Iowa goes, that's really what they need. A quarterback who can scramble a bit, extend plays when needed, but ultimately just make the right decision. Um, take what the defense gives you. Um, and that's what Tanner Mordecai has done, and that's what he's going to do this weekend. You know, Wisconsin doesn't need to score 30 points in order to win. Barring a pick six or a special teams touchdown by Iowa, 20 should do the job fairly comfortably. Um, and so, like I said, I think this game is going to come down to turnovers and special teams, as boring as that sounds. But that's Big Ten West football, baby. Um, you know, I've gone back and forth on this pick a lot because, I mean, the line up at 9.5 does seem like a lot for... Um, a game that's traditionally close and a game that's likely to decide a division. It just seems like a lot. Um, so I have gone back and forth on who's going to cover this spread, um, mainly because I think this Iowa defense is capable of making big plays um, when they need it the most and keeping them in this game. But I just don't have any faith in this Iowa offense. I, it, I cannot bring myself to put any money on Iowa. And the over-under at 36 is just a little bit too low for me. I usually love Iowa unders. It's made me a lot of money over the years, but it's just a little too low for my liking. Um, but this Iowa offense, I mean, they've averaged fewer than 150 total yards against the only two good defenses that, that they've played this year. That's Penn State and Michigan State. Um, and Wisconsin also gets this game at home, which helps. So again, like I just haven't seen anything from Iowa this year that makes me think that they can all of a sudden awaken offensively and make the plays they need to in order to win this game. I mean, at the end of the day, Iowa should be in this game entering the fourth quarter. Like it still should be a game. They should have an opportunity to win it, but there just hasn't been anything I've seen this season that makes me think Iowa can outscore Wisconsin. So um, with this line at nine and a half, I'd be a lot more comfortable taking Wisconsin if it did slide under nine, because I think there's going to be a lot of field goals. You know, I could see this being like a six, nine, 12 point deficit because of that. But honestly, as long as this line doesn't go above 10, I'm taking the Badgers. Like they're, they're the better team. Um, they're the better coach team. They have better offense, you know, comparable defense. Um, and I think, you know, Luke Fickle 
knows what his goal was this season was to win the Big Ten West. He knows that Iowa is probably the only team standing in his way, and I expect Wisconsin to have their best and most complete game this weekend. They'll cover and win by at least 10 points. And that's going to do it for the Week 7 edition of the Floor Slaps College Football Podcast. I've been your host, Sean, and as always, I hope you enjoyed listening as much as I love talking about college football and Big Ten football every week. Um, if you don't already follow us on Twitter, please do, at the Floor Slap, um, and go check out our website, thefloorslap.com. In fact, we have college basketball coming up at the end of the month, and Jordan has a whole basketball preview out and live. He's covering not just the Big Ten, but outside the conference as well, so a lot of great content there. Um, yeah, we will catch you here next week for another edition of the Floor Slap Podcast and hope you enjoy another weekend of college football. We only get so many every year, so make sure to kick back, you know, order a pizza, grab some beer, and, you know, sit on your couch for about 12 hours because that's what I'm going to be doing. Um, you know, stay safe, everyone. I will catch you here next week.